If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about printing, we're talking about playing, we're talking about what does it look like to create print and play games, and why? Why in the world would you want to do that? Some of the reasons might uh, surprise you. And we're talking to Rachel Bruner, the designer of Harsh Shadows, and a just an incredible print and player, printer and player. I don't know, I don't know what the, uh, the noun would be there, Rachel, but uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So what is yeah. it now? Are you a PNPer? <laughs> that sounds kind of awkward. Like, what would you say? Yeah, PNPer, print and player. Yep, <laughs> that all works. <laughs> I feel like PNPer comes across better reading it online than me saying it. PNPer sounds like something my two-year-old would say. But... <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. Usually I just see it in writing online, but yeah. <laughs> well, I might not say it too many more times. But uh, anyway, really excited to have you on the show. You're a person I've been following for several years now, uh, specifically inside Martin's Print and Play Hideaway, the excellent Facebook group that is devoted to print and play games by, you know, kind of run by my friend Martin Gonzalez. And he's just an excellent guy, one of the kind of icons of the print and play community. And you're a person as well that is also just doing some really cool things. You've been doing this for a while. You've had people contact you about doing this, like for them, and they'll hire you to create PMP games for them. And so you're a person I'm really excited to chat with and just pick your brain as far as what are your recommendations, what are the resources, the software. And also, how does this all kind of play into game design? Because you also design your own games as well. But before we get into all of that kind of thing, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that. Well, great. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, Yes, I uh, have a real passion for print and play. And it's what led me into game design. So it's really kind of the history of what got me into game design. I've loved games for a long time, but... uh, um, looking back in my history, my siblings and I actually did a little bit of like of our own print and play where we would try to make little games and things. And I didn't really re- realize it at the time, but many years later, uh, when I started uh, printing other people's games and uh, you know playing them, I really got into it more and more over the years. Very cool. And so what about print and play brought you into the hobby? So you said that you got into that before game design. So tell me about that. Tell me about the, like the genesis and kind of what brought you in. Well, let's see. Um, back in 2013, I supported a Kickstarter for um, a werewolf type game, just cards so you could play um, the traditional werewolf game. Uh, it was a Kickstarter by Corey Fields. I was in 2013 and I supported that and I was like, okay, how am I going to you know, print these cards and, and play it myself? And then that kind of just got the ball rolling a little bit, but I didn't get into it a whole lot. Uh, 2014 did some 
uh, some deck tet that's a specialized type of playing card deck that's really uh, fantastic i made some of those decks uh, and i just would laminate the cards and wasn't really sure of other methods and then the next couple of years i was found found a couple of other games and i started re-theming i took love letter and i re-themed and did my own star wars version for a birthday gift for my brother and uh, a couple other versions and started getting into more of the actual mani manipulation of making cards myself and creating the files for uh, being able to print them. And then next couple of years did a couple of games for my kids. And that's, I think, let's see, 2017, I found a really fun game called um, Bear Went Over the Mountain. And it would, um, I don't want to get the author's name wrong, the designer, but uh, I think it was 2017 and he had entered in one of the children's game contests. And so when I saw that, I started looking at that and looking at uh, the game design contest on Board Game Geek. And that's when I started to then get into my own game design. So if you want more history on that, I could talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We'll get into that in just one second. But first, what, like, what appealed to you about the print and play side of things? Because I know some people, they just really love the arts and crafts side of it. They love cutting stuff out and laminating and creating stickers and dice on kind of thing. And a lot of times they don't even play the games that they create. They just enjoy that part of it. And so was that part of it as well? Or, or you also were just a big time gamer? Tell me more. Oh, yeah. I've uh, always loved games growing up as a kid and would, you know, pester my family to play games with me and learning to shuffle cards and things like that. And um, and then eventually learned about Dominion and Catan and got into the, you know, the more meat of <laughs> board games. Um, not really sure. Let's see that in there. Uh, I think 2012, maybe around there's when I really started to get into it more. And uh, it just kind of exploded from there. How I've just gained a collection since then. But uh, and friends who play games and whatnot. So yeah, I really love that. In the print and play part, it's kind of funny because I'm I don't, I've never really considered myself an artistic or crafty person. I've tried different crafts. I got into beading for making like jewelry for a while and uh, enjoyed that okay, but would get frustrated because stuff often didn't turn out the way I thought or would like. And so I'd get frustrated with crafts that can't paint or draw. And, and my, my family, I have a, my mom and my sister are both really crafty and creative and my sister's very artistic. And so I was kind of, I was like, oh, I'm no good at this. And, and then um, when I started coming upon print and play, it combined the two loves of uh, games and finding a craft that is in something I love to do, if that makes sense. Because it's, I find print and plays can be, works really well for left brain of you're aligning the cards, you're cutting them out or laminating, whatever you're doing. It's, you don't have to be artistic or crafty to be able to do it, I guess. That makes sense? Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And real quick, before we go any further, give me your definition of print and play. Let's assume somebody's listening to this podcast. They've never even heard of this before, never heard of the PNP or being a PNP. -er. Uh, so what, right. you, like, what would you say that even is? Um, I define it as having uh, digital files that have components for a game that you print, and then you cut them out, prepare them, whatever ever you need to do to get them ready to then be able to play the game. And that includes having digital rules to explain the game or a video that explains the game. Um, but print and play can include other types and forms where if people are making components by hand, maybe using wood or paper and drawing their own, you, 
you don't have to print components to be considered print and play. It's in the communities I've been in, it's pretty open. We accept, you know, so, you know, different types and forms. Some do 3D printing of components and that counts too. And pretty much I figure if you're making some kind of components and putting them together and playing a game, then it counts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of reasons why a person who is designing games would want to get into this side of things. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But first, let's talk about your process. So tell me how designing games and creating print and play games intersect. Because I feel like most people don't even think about the print and play side. It's usually an afterthought. You can tell that by a lot of Kickstarter campaigns that throw (laughs) out really garbage files. And it's like, oh, there's one card per page. That's Mm -hmm. terrible. You know, lots of that is just an afterthought. But you are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in that you came from the PNP world first and then became a game designer. And so tell me how those worlds collide. Tell me about kind of your process of thinking through, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to create a print and play game. I'm designing a print and play game that will maybe be picked up by a publisher and that's happened as well. And so tell me kind of the intersection of these two worlds. Uh, Sure. So for me, I see it as um, an opportunity to share a game with others worldwide. It's super easy with the internet and being able to share files and whatnot. And so uh, being able to have the files, uh, the cards, the components in a format that makes it easier for people to print and to be able to cut them out. That, I think that's a big part of file layout is getting the cards, hexes, you know, whatever other components you have in your game, tiles, whatnot, in a layout that people are more comfortable using, being able to have little crosshairs of where the corners meet up on cards or lines to know where to place a ruler or if people are using, there's different, lots of different tools and techniques and methods. There's not one right way to do it, but being able to have the guides to be able to know where to cut your cards and layout, especially if your cards have card backs, trying to get those to line up and things, you know, there's, yeah, that's kind of a focus for planning with my game design, I always definitely keep in mind how the print play is going to work for people to try it themselves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this also gives you a very interesting constraint. You know, one thing I I advise a lot of designers, especially new designers, is to give yourself constraints. Don't don't allow yourself to have everything as an option because it's overwhelming and you can just grow and scope and it's hard to actually get anything done. And so tell me how starting off with the idea of, okay, I'm going to make a print and play game. And so you're very much constrained. You know, like you, there's only certain things you can do with that and you can get really creative as well. And it kind of creates an opportunity to solve some interesting problems. So tell me about that and maybe some interesting things you've run into and ways you've solved the issue because this has to be printed out and has to be cut out and maybe laminated and then glued. So tell me kind of some things that come out of that constraint and why it's helpful in your design process. Yes, starting small really does help. I think at least for me it did and having a constraint. Uh, For my first game I ever designed that actually became a game you could play because for several years, you know, I tried different things, could kind of figure it out. And then having a constraint actually surprisingly made it easier for me. Uh, Board Game Geek was having a contest for 54 cards only. There weren't any other components allowed. And so when I thought of that, I was like, oh, you know, instead of worrying about all the other options out there, I just focused on cards and only a maximum of 54. So I was like, that's a card deck. I, you know, figured that out. And so that started the cogs working in my brain and thinking about it and what different things I could do with cards. And and I designed a game called Hands of Time, where you have a broken clock and you got to uh, fix where the numbers on the clock are. 
and you got to keep ahead of father time. Uh, so it was just with cards and that constraint really helped me to be able to, um, come up with a game that worked for me for my first time. It helped me build confidence in that I could design a game cause it actually worked and it was playable. It had a win, uh, loss, uh, option ending, whatever. And yeah, that really helped me. And so I, and then the same with, uh, the print and play having a constraint helps with, you know, figuring out and learning the structure of things like learning how to put the cards together and talking with the other people in the print and play communities. And there are, you know, people have created templates out there and a lot of people are willing to share and then being able to put the fart, the, sorry, the cards in a layout, um, or a couple of options for different people. Um, yeah, so with 54 cards, you just have uh, six pages of nine cards on a page uh, for fronts. If you have backs, then you would have uh, double that, uh, well, or just one page of backs if it's for all the same cards. But yeah, it's much easier to design a game, I believe, having constraints. And the same with the print and play file, starting small. That's definitely where I started. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it it doesn't get overwhelming, or at least it's less likely to get overwhelming because you're not having to worry about all these different cubes and, and miniatures and map tiles. <laughs> I mean, maybe, and there's lots of print and play games that have map tiles and stuff like that, but, you know, starting small, starting inside of this very constrained box of, okay, someone's going to print this off on eight and a half by 11 size paper. And then, you know, trying to make, also, it's another thing is making it as easy as possible for people to be able to print it off, cut it out and play it and all that. So tell me about that. Like, what are some things that you can do to make it easier that way people will actually do it because i know i've seen people in the community that have printed off a million games and have only (laughs) you know actually put together like 10 of them and so how can you make it easier for people to print it off and actually get it to the table um there is definitely a lot of humor in the print and play communities about the concept that we print uh, games, but they don't get played. And so there's a lot of chatter and fun about that of like, okay, well, you know, what games are you actually playing and how big's your, you know, pile of unplayed games that you've printed and put together because the crafting part is very relaxing for a lot of people and it's a fun part. So that can definitely happen. Um, But to make it easier for people, uh, part of it is if people are newer to print and play, they may not have um, extra components. They may not have dice or pawns or meeples or cubes and whatnot. Uh, So they may not have a lot of supplies and and whatnot, but there's things that can be scavenged from other games. And when people get more and more into the print and play community, there's definitely uh, is a desire to gather more of the miscellaneous game components. Uh, Definitely for me, I've (laughs) gotten really into that. I buy new, I scavenge secondhand stores, thrift stores, find old games or mixed games or just parts and pieces in the craft sections and find all kinds of things, you know, dice and little gems and uh, cubes and, you know, tokens and chits and all kinds of different things. So people who maybe um, don't have much can start to, you know, gather those things. But for those who don't, it helps if you make your print and play file have those components too. A common thing is like if you have tokens in your game, sometimes it's easier to have them square or hex instead of circles because circles can be harder to craft or whatnot, but, or having an option where it's a square and then they could cut it out as a circle. Like there's some people get punches and whatnot to craft that. 
So, but having the components to be able to print and make their own little tiles. Uh, some people like to get pieces of like just uh, your scrap stuff like um, cereal board using the cardboard from a cereal box or cracker box or whatnot and, and glue a page down on that. And then you can cut out and have tokens that have a little bit of thickness to them, things like that. Um, and if people in their print and play file maybe put a little bit of an explanation for things that can help too for people who maybe don't know what the components are or what they need for them. But yeah, the more people like people who are in the print and play community, it's really friendly and there's a lot of questions that get asked and then people share. And so there are lots of good resources out there too. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get into the communities and the groups and different things in a second. But one thing I've noticed as far as like helping people get it to the table, get it printed out, make it easier is I've seen some people include like a low ink version or even a black and white version, you know, just assuming that people don't have endless amounts of money to spend on printer ink and things like that. Is that something you would recommend or is that just kind of a luxury thing? Uh, yes, definitely. I think it's advantageous because there are people who don't have color printers uh, or don't want to use all their ink or toner on a heavy art game. It's, it's good if you do have the art to then have a low ink. It's also fine to just start with a low ink, a simple that just maybe just has words and a few icons on the game. It doesn't have to be fancy for people to try it out. Um, of course, people, you know, a lot of people do like to have the high art, but not everybody. And yeah, having a low ink version, which can be just black and white, it can be outlines of things, not having like a background color and uh, just simple words and icons. And, and that's definitely for creating a prototype instead of putting all the effort into making the, uh, a visually nice looking prototype. It's okay to start with uh, <laughs> just the bare minimum to test it out before you, I, cause I've definitely done that, put in too much effort in something and then realizing, Oh, I'm not going to even use that uh, art or whatever. Yeah. One thing I learned from my hunted series of games is if you have cards that the main background color is black, or even just you have a background color at all, try to make a low ink version where mm -hmm. it's white. That way you're not just burning up people's uh, printers. And also, you know, the more ink that you put on a page, the, like the more the paper kind of wrinkles and it gets, Mm -hmm. It's just harder to work with. So definitely something to uh, to think about. And so, yeah, let's talk about communities. Tell me some of your recommendations. Like I mentioned, Martin's Print and Play Hideaway. That's one of my favorite print and play communities. Any others that you would recommend, like on Facebook or online in general? Uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, Martin's group is fantastic. I visit the page several times a day most days and just enjoy everybody's posts and questions and sharing. And and I share my stuff there. Uh, but there there's also a print and play Facebook group. Um, it's, let me pull it up. It's called um, Loading Print and Play Gaming. And that's a fantastic group too. Lots of great people and resources. So uh, I, those are both great communities I recommend. There are um, on Board Game Geek, there's a, a forum. And, oh, well, there's a, what's it called? A guild. There's a print and play gaming guild and there's a, a forum of like the DIY stuff those um, people post in, but also in like the work in progress thread under game design, there's uh, people will post different things about print and play there and whatnot, but the Facebook groups for sure, the most active groups that I'm in, and there's a few uh, discord options out there. Um, but yeah, that's the main one I would say is the, the main two. 
Right. Now, are these all places that I can post my print and play projects and games? Or like, tell me, what do I gain from being part of these communities? Well, you can definitely learn about the print and play um, process and gain help and ideas and whatnot. Uh, but you can also share uh, and look for like play testers and things. That's uh, another good reason to have a low ink version is to get play testers maybe more likely to print something low ink. But yeah, you can uh, or if you've got um, a new game you're wanting to spread the news about. Uh, in most of the Facebook groups, you don't post, uh, like, upload a file to the group. Just share a link to the file wherever you posted it, like Dropbox or, uh, like, Google Docs uh, and other online uh, places to uh, for storing. But then just share the link to that. That's the preferred method, yes. Gotcha. Now, do you have a preferred uh, way to do that? Like as far as, do you prefer Dropbox or Google Drive? Anything in particular or some people know, or is it really just per, uh, personal preference? Uh, I use both. And I found a lot of people, use, those seem to be the most two common uh, file sources. I, I think I prefer Dropbox a little bit. Uh, pros and cons uh, for each one though. With Google Drive, you need to make sure you give permissions to that folder and files and whatnot. Uh, and sometimes I've had problems with that. So I often will just use Dropbox. But if you have a bunch of files, you don't want to use Dropbox because you have to open each file separately um, to download it. So if it's you've got multiple files, I definitely recommend going with Google Drive or gotcha. another source. Yeah. Okay. I want to follow up on more best practices and things like that. But first, before we dive into kind of the weeds and the really specific information, let's talk about why. Why do you think it's important for game designers nowadays to have print and play skills to, you know, be able to go onto into some kind of on, uh, online software or just, you know, Photoshop or something like that to create the files and things like that? What are some of the things that uh, make that valuable as a skill set in today's game design world? Well, having a print and play of your game and offering that either free or for low cost uh, definitely helps in the marketing of a game, I believe, because the game design community, the games that come out, it, it there are a lot, and there's a lot of new ones that come out, and there's a lot of competition. And so if somebody wants to get their game out there, this is definitely uh, another avenue. The print and play community has grown, and it continues to grow. Um, and what's great is when you share the files for your game, you allow somebody else to try it out. They take pictures, they talk about it, they share about the game, other people see it and hear about it. And not everyone is going to want to print and play a game. There's several games that I've just bought the actual game because I didn't want to take the work. And I can, I can print and put together whatever game, but I don't always want to do one for whatever reason. I just want the produced one. And print players can put, some put a lot of time and effort and quality uh, products and um, skills into making a print and play. And so when they're sharing in the groups and communities on BoardGameGeek, they're, oh, I forgot to mention BoardGameGeek has a really great um, monthly uh, group where you can share your print and play builds. It's the monthly print and play um, builds geek list. And, and there's a thread you can subscribe to in each month. And Martin hosts this now. And you can share there too. And if you're doing like a Kickstarter with print play, there's places on BoardGameGeek for that too. And I can share some links later and stuff. But yeah, sorry, I got sidetracked there. But um, where was I at? Do you remember? Oh, we were talking about why. Like, what are some of the advantages why? of, yeah. Oh, yeah. So when people are talking about your game and they're sharing it with others, 
I mean, you didn't have to make it and send or buy a prototype. They made one, basically. Somebody else is making the prototype themselves. They're making the game and they're sharing it with others and sharing pictures and spreading the word because they like it. You know, they're not going to share it if, if they don't. But people do share games and we, all the time. Like there's posts and people are like, oh, what game's that? Where did you get that? Where, where can I find more? And that's a really great way to start spreading the word, cut it, you know, start getting some followers, getting people interested in your game. Uh, and a lot of print players will follow a, a game, like if they're doing a Kickstarter or whatnot, or if they're sharing that their game's coming out and stuff. If they've offered a print and play, it's uh, kind of like a little gift almost to help gain people, you know's interest in the game. And a lot of people will follow and support because of that. Yeah, for sure. One thing I found is that a lot of people will download the files with no intent of actually printing them off or cutting them out or anything like that. They just want to see the cards. They just want to see how the game is laid out and the art and things like that. And so if you can attach these files to a Kickstarter campaign page or in the in the lead up to a game coming out or something like that, there's going to be a lot of people who are interested and just want to see the game and aren't even actually going to download it with the intent of creating it themselves. And so that's another thing. Uh, also, something I was thinking about was the margin on print and play can be really good because it's just mm -hmm. a file. It's just a an, an email and a link. And, you know, obviously you have to pay, probably have to pay a graphic designer or someone to lay things out, unless you can do it yourself. We're going to talk about your experience here in just a minute. But so, but the costs in general are pretty negligible compared to manufacturing and fulfilling and shipping and all that kind of thing. And so you can have a pretty good margin. So if you offer your print and play files for $5, well, you're going to make pretty close to $5 on that transaction. And that could be another uh, thing just to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, it really is. It's it's a one time, you know, build the file. There it is. It's ready. And it can be downloaded infinity amount of times because there isn't a limit on that unless you have hosting issues. But really, it really is, you know, uh, scalable. You can have easily hundreds, thousands of people download it. And that's, yeah, extra right there. Yeah. Another thing I ran into with my Hunted series is that a while back, I released a kind of Christmas themed game that you follow the the journey of this elf and it was a game that at the time i was like i don't think the market is big enough to like manufacture this game for real but i, I feel good about a print and play and, and put it out into the world and it got some really good feedback and people mm -hmm. really enjoyed it and gave me some really good uh, ideas as far as how to improve the game and they play tested and played it and enjoyed it and things like that and now it's going to come out hopefully towards the end of this year maybe early i'm trying to do it before christmas obviously <laughs> but um but it's going to be a real game and i've already got pre-orders and people ordering it and so that's another thing you can kind of test the water so to speak without you know, you know putting a ton of money into manufacturing and shipping you can kind of put it out there and say hey here's this game what do you think and, and get some really good feedback for something maybe you're not sure about or if you don't have a bunch of money to put into setting up everything for a Kickstarter campaign or, or funding the entire manufacturing, like the print run yourself. It's a way to kind of get the game out into the world and see what comes back. Yes. And getting feedback for your game is really important. And sometimes some game designers just put on Kickstarter without enough feedback, in my opinion. And, and so then later when people start playing the game and there's more and more people, then there are things that can be pointed out that could have been fixed before the game was manufactured. And so offering a print and play and getting that out in the community, because you can do that before doing your crowdsourcing, you know, being able to share that in the print and play communities and other online sources is just getting that out there, getting some feedback. And uh, some designers may worry, oh, somebody's going to take my game and, you know, sell them things or, oh, they're just going to print it and then they're not going to buy it. it. It takes a lot of time and resources and effort and sometimes more to make your own game that for somebody's getting printed 
print it and play it than it does to just buy the game. So, uh, you know, it's not really a real valid concern, uh, even though some people worry about that. But, you know, people do like to see the files, look and see how the game is and the art and learn about it and be like, oh, that does sound really good. That looks really good. I want to try that and, and be more supportive of it. If there's a problem with it, sharing like, oh, you know, there's what about this? This doesn't make sense. This looks like there's a problem. You know, having people looking at your game, the more eyes on it, the more things that any issues that they can catch before it goes into production. I mean, that's all valuable in my mind. Yeah, I totally agree. And it also could work out like it did, I think, in your case, and, and I want to know more, as far as a publisher seeing your game online, your print and play files, and then reaching out and saying, hey, I want to publish that. And so is that kind of what happened with you? And tell me about it. Yes, that's exactly what happened to me. So I created a game for one of the Board Game Geek contests, and it was for um, the 54 Card Game Contest and I called it To Catch a Spy. And that uh, game, the contest is a great place. The contest is a great place to also get feedback and whatnot. And I just design for fun and enjoy it myself. And of course, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to see my game out there. But I wasn't searching or looking. And the contest was actually in the process of still running when um, Jason Greeno, uh, he's a designer, and he uh, and Jason Tagmeyer started Wonderspell. They, uh, Jason Greeno reached out to me and asked me what my plans were for my game to catch a spy after the contest. And I was like, uh, I don't really have plans. <laughs> I was like, I'm just waiting to see what happens when the contest ends. And a couple of days later, he followed up and he's like, well, we're really interested in looking at this. And he told me about their idea to start this new company focusing on just games that are just a deck of cards. And I said, okay, yeah. So we started talking and that's uh, and it led to them offering a contract and then they hired an artist who uh, made this ben, ben uh, made this fantastic art and uh, and then i put together the print and play files for the community since that's what you know i've got those skills i've developed and being able to share that with with others and whatnot so yeah it, that's definitely what happened to me they reached out to me to they he saw that he said he saw the the game I think I'd shared it in the uh, one of the Facebook groups and he saw it there. And, and one of the things he says that, um, it, you know, his wife saw the game and was like, oh, I would play that. And I've heard that a couple of times. Um, and so it appealed to a broader audience sometimes than some games do. So yeah, it was pretty exciting. Very cool. And that's another big reason as far as the why and why a designer might want to do this or consider gaining these skills and, and kind of putting their designs, their ideas out into the world in this way, because who knows, you might get picked up by a publisher. And uh, it's something I'm looking at all the time. I love it when somebody posts a new idea inside one of these print and play uh, communities or Facebook groups or inside the BGDO community. And they say, hey, I'm working on this game. Here are the, pre the PMP files. Here's a video, especially a video. If you put a video mm -hmm. together of like how to play the game, like a quick overview, I love that. I love watching that. And I've reached out to several people about is like, hey, what's your plan? And this is something that I might be interested in. So let me know kind of what you're thinking as far as do you want to do it yourself? Are you already reaching out to publishers? Like I'm doing that personally. And I know a lot of other publishers are as well. And so there's a lot of good things that can come just from putting your ideas out into the world and some cool things coming back. Definitely. Now, another part of the why is let's, let's keep talking about publishing so that it makes it a lot easier for a publisher 
to actually be able to play test your game. Now, if you live outside of the United States or outside of a kind of a, a main area like the UK or EU or whatever, you know, it's kind of hard to get a publisher a prototype. It's very difficult for me to send a publisher a, a game from Honduras. Like it's, it's probably not going to make it. And so right. if I create some PMP files and kind of put it out there. So tell me about that. Do you have any experience in, in publishers downloading your files and cutting things out and then getting back to you? Or do you know other people who have traveled down that road? Um, I had one game I sent to a publisher, a previous game, and they looked at it and uh, and then weren't interested, which was fine. But uh, and that was a physical game. I actually sent a copy, but that was here in the United States. But yeah, for being able, uh, you know, worldwide, being able, you know, we're able to communicate. Being able to send files makes it so much easier. So I actually had another game um, picked up, a game called. Royal Espionage, picked up by a Chinese uh, publishing company, and they are translating it into Chinese and will publish it in Chinese. And that was easy because I just sent digital files. I didn't have to send anything physical. And that, you know, so really anyone anywhere can, con you know, publishers that are open to receiving, you know, submissions, they can receive that, you know, worldwide. So it definitely makes it easier being able to put together the print and play files. There are a lot of uh, contests out there in Board Game Geek. There's a thread for game design contests that you can subscribe to, and anytime a new contest is listed on there, uh, you can get a notification in your, on your Board Game Geek subscriptions and being able to see if there's a design contest. There's ones hosted on Board Game Geek, but there's other ones announced that are hosted elsewhere. And, you know, contests are a great way to reach out to publishers who are looking for a very specific uh, type or styles of games. Uh, some might fit for a designer, some others might not, And but there's a lot out there. And there's actually been quite a few this summer that really surprised me in this last couple of months. So, you know, just being, having those print and play files, if you're able to, you know, put together little videos, that does help. Some games, requ uh, contests require a video. Uh, you know, sometimes that can be a little overwhelming, like, oh, how am I going to record a video? But uh, I was able to put together uh, a DIY, like construct my own little kit stand uh, to be able to hook up my phone to a little um, PVC pipe stand that I just set on my table and then it's facing down and then I was able to record videos on how to play my games and I think that definitely helped for my games that are out there that the videos help publishers look at and be like, okay, I can see how this game plays. You know, so it can be overwhelming for uh, newer designers of like, how am I going to do this or not? But learning a little bit here or there, and if it's too overwhelming, start with something small. Just start with making the files, uh, practice putting to get typing up your rules in a cohesive, you know, document and things like that. But then eventually expounding onto more, like adding a video or adding, you know, more to your, uh, you know, sharing it and things. Yeah, I mean, it's really advantageous, I think. Definitely. And I know a lot of people here, especially over the last year, year and a half, have been talking about Tabletop Simulator and how valuable that is as far as pitching games to publishers or, or playtesting and all that. And that's definitely true. But I'm going to speak from personal experience as a designer and a publisher and, and just someone who playtests a lot of games and does a lot of that kind of thing. I'm not a big fan of Tabletop Simulator. Uh, <laughs> I love physical copies. And so I don't mind going and printing and cutting things out. And this is actually a way that my daughter and I hang out sometimes is I'll print a bunch of stuff off for either a game I'm working on or something that I'm reviewing as a publisher and I'll pay her some money and she'll sit down and cut these things out and I'll be sleeving while she's cutting. And it's kind of a way for us to kind of hang out and her to, you know, learn about earning money and things like that. And so, but I, I just don't like 
tabletop simulator. I'm just not a fan. And and so I know a lot of other people are in the same situation and they would prefer that, you know, you create the files and, and send those over and then I can just print them out and cut them out and then play the game. So it's something to be aware of. It's But at the same time, it's not one or the other. I think nowadays we're living in a time where you need both. If you want to be a legit designer and get your game in front of as many people as possible, you probably need to figure out how to do both or at least find people you can hire to help you do both. And uh, just kind of where we are, where we are right now. And um, what let's get into kind of your best practices as far as creating these files and, and what, uh, what it looks like to do this effectively, to do it well. Tell me what you... Tell me your process. Tell me your experience. Maybe some things that you did that were like, oh, well, don't do this, but make sure you do it this way. Give me some, like your best tips and tricks. Uh, sure. Well, there's um, different ways to put together a print and play file. There, you know, there's not a right or wrong way, but there is a standard that is more accepted in the print and play community. Uh, the most common is the nine card layout, which is a three by three grid of cards if you're doing cards and then having little crosshairs at all the corners uh, so that then a ruler can be lined up, you can know where to cut out the cards and having you know that for the fronts and backs and making sure that the entire set of nine cards is centered on the page, both vertically and horizontally. That way, if um, there are backs, it's not as much important. It's not as important if there are backs, but if there are backs, those also need to be centered so that um, if people print and want to print the backs on the same page and put it back through the printer, do duplex printing, that they line up. Printers are not perfect at that. There will be some offset. Um, so that's something to be aware of. It's a, one of the most common questions in the print play community is that they've printed and it's not, <laughs> the alignment isn't perfect. And printers I don't have that perfect, most don't have the perfect alignment that we expect or want with cards, but you, there are some different techniques kind of adjusting your printer or learning how you put it in. For me, I print on, when I print on both sides, I'll print on like, uh, if I'm going to laminate cards, I print on 65 pound paper. If I'm going to um, do a core, which is adding material in between the cards doing the gutter fold method, which I'll explain in a minute. I print on like linen paper, thinner paper. So sorry, I'm off here, but if I print on cardstock, so I like on a 65 pound cardstock, print on that, the fronts, then I flip it over and put it back in my printer to do the backs. If I try to do duplex with my printer, then it's it's off a lot more. So definitely best practices, uh, trial and error really is part of the print and play process is figuring out what works for you with what tools you have and, and trying different things. Um, some people don't have a printer and so you can go to a print place um, to have stuff printed or whatnot. Um, yeah, so that's kind of uh, what works for me for creating the, but that's, that's not creating the file. So if you're creating the file, if you're doing duplex, it's really important um, a lot of people, if there are backs to your cards, you want to make sure that you flip the cards. So on the fronts, it's cards one, two, three. On the back, it will be card backs three, two, one. Because when the page flips over and you're printing on that, card three is on the other side, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's kind of hard to visualize verbally, but the front, when you flip a page over, it, the cards need to be laid out three, two, one. And I have a little graphic I put together that I share in the you know, when people have asked how that works, 
to print duplex so visually they can see oh i see this is how i need to lay out my cards in the file so those kinds of things like what to do and how to do those are great questions to ask in the print play communities too people are really friendly and uh, you know there's resources there's videos actually that um, some of us have made uh, there's several different out ones out there that give different options on how to do different game boards how to different ways to do tokens um, different ways to lay out the files different ways how to create the prototype or create your game yeah for sure now do you have a recommendation as far as software like what do you use in actually creating these files so there are a lot of great softwares out there that can be used and i don't i don't think a person needs to have an expensive program to be able to uh, put together a print and play file but i definitely recommend not using microsoft word it's not the the best for doing uh layouts it's tricky to use so uh so there's different software so if you're looking to design cards or art or whatnot or putting together uh there's different types of programs out there if you're wanting uh like vectors is what i use because i'm not an artist but i've learned how to use to create vectors, to create art, to create images. And I use Inkscape, which is a free program. There are other ones out there that do vectors. If you're more hands like drawing and stuff, then there's all the there's lots of different drawing apps out there. Um, being able to, you know, do more illustration type stuff, you know, there's different resources out, out there. Um, for putting together the print and play files, there are a couple of different resources out there. The one I use isn't isn't as common in the community, but for me, it's absolutely fantastic. It's Microsoft Publisher. It's a, a desktop publishing program. Uh, it does have a cost though, and there are some free alternatives out there. I haven't personally tried them because I haven't needed to, but there are um, some that people I've seen share and talk about the different um, programs out there for laying out cards. For me, I just find that it's really easy because I make my templates and then I can just drag and drop images right onto my template images. And it's pretty quick and easy uh, once I have my templates set up. But for people who are new, if maybe they don't have that, um, finding some programs that work for you that you're willing to try and then asking in the communities it, for templates. Uh, you know, why reinvent the wheel, right? <laughs> so there are a lot of templates out there. Um, there's lots of different resources. Um, templates can, there are some that are done in Inkscape, the vector program. But I learned that for me, I when I was new at this, creating the print and play files in Inkscape for anything more than just a few cards wasn't advantageous because the file size of that game was huge. So for example, I put together the print and play files for Cristallo. It's a beautiful uh, game by Liberty Kiefer, Kiefer, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, and um, with uh, beautiful gems and animals and artwork. And it's a full deck. There's a full deck of 54 cards. And I originally created those files for her game several years ago, and I used Inkscape. And the, the files were anywhere from 50 to 80 megs in size, the print and play files, the PDF files. But in Microsoft Publisher, that dropped down to only six megs. And the, the quality of the art was still fantastic. When I compare, I can't tell the difference on my computer which file is which when I look at them. And I recently just redid those files, which are now uploaded into the games file page on Board Game Geek. 
and she's also working on an expansion that's um, available for playtesting and things. So yeah, there's, um, you know, I definitely recommend finding uh, programs and software that work for you and trying different things. For me, I learned how to use Inkscape for the purpose of uh, learning how to make the vector art to, for games. And it did take some time, but there are lots of resources online on how to learn different softwares. There were videos and whatnot. Um, so that can sometimes be overwhelming for people. So the other option is uh, asking some, you know, someone to help you. And there's a lot of fantastic people in the print and play community who are willing to help out. I've put together tons of files for people uh, just here or there and for different things. Uh, and in the board game contest communities, there's people there who help out. There's those who help put the games on tabletop simulator for those who don't know how to do that. There's a lot of great help out there. Even people who've made videos of people's games. Um, yeah, so definitely uh, reach out to others and don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah, definitely. And so let's get into like the more physical aspect of things. So that was kind of the digital side. <laughs> Tell me your your best practices, your, your recommended resources, your favorite cutter, your favorite laminator, oh. <laughs> any of those things that, you know, someone who's wanting to kind of get into this on the actual physical side and print things off. And even just for prototyping, because that's another why you might want to do this because you can make prototypes so much faster and easier and cheaper. So tell me about some of your recommendations for the actual tools. Well, I think a lot of the things that I use maybe aren't the best for new people. <laughs> I think that um, okay, fair enough. Give me like the beginner and then give me like okay. the next level Cadillac right. version that you use now. So for starting out, uh, really, I mean, you can start as easy as just scissors. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. Uh, just that's how I started, just cutting out with scissors. But it's not, um, if you're going to do this more than once, uh, you know, getting into print playing, I would definitely recommend getting some tools. And there's a lot of great um, resources out there that give ideas, but so basics, uh, the one common thing that's recommended is using a cork-backed ruler and a rotary cutter uh, that's often like for cutting material, like fabric. And that surprised me when I was first in the community and learned about that. And But I was like, well, that makes sense. I cut fabric with the rotary cutter. I cut paper with this. And uh, it does take a little bit of skill and learning how to use. And um, there are some great um, different resources and videos out there from a couple of different print and players that share how to use different tools. So if you're wanting to learn specific ones, then, you know, look for those and whatnot. But the, for me, I find that uh, it was harder for me to use that. I had a guillotine cutter I used for years and years and years, and I just knew where it cut and how it cut. And I was able to work with that. And I learned how to set it up in a way that to make it like have a right angle, I would set up and attach a, a, a system to it to Put, to be able to cut cards so they would have that right angle and, you know, so kind of finagling things. But really, one of the easiest is getting um, that's recommended. Martin's shared this in his videos and um, resources is getting a uh, getting a Fiskars uh, cutting board that's got the little slide with the little um, rulers and uh, that's got the wire guide. I haven't actually personally bought or used one with the wire guide. I've used um, a rotary cutter that has uh, has a rotary blade and it's self sharpening. That's what, but that's a much more expensive tool. But for you know twenty thirty dollars price range, you can get a Fiskars one that has the sliding blade with the wire guide. That's been really popular in the print and play communities. You can line up 
those cut marks on the on the printed card page to be able to line up and also for cutting out other things not just cards but that's the main one but like tokens or hexes or whatnot following the cut guides and that tool has been really um recommended and used a lot uh, with great success so those um yeah those work really well um you know trying different papers and things uh, one thing with print and play making cards is that regular paper isn't slippery enough to slide cards there needs to be something to help lower the friction so you can more easily slide the cards to use cards it's if you try taking just a couple pieces of paper and trying to slide them around it's not going to work real well it's fine for a prototype if you're just testing but if you're doing a lot of cards in a in a game um and especially if you're wanting to use them multiple times um if it's not just a prototype prototype if it's an actual like finished game and somebody wants to play this a lot having a slightly uh, higher end uh, print and play like how you create it is recommended and a common way is to laminate because laminate is more slippery there's pros and cons to that but um, if you, um, Martin first really shared uh, at least in from what I, my perspective that shared about using 65 pound um, cardstock printing on that fronts and backs, and then you laminate that page and then cut it out. And he's got some great videos on best ways to do that and some easy ways. And that is a great technique. I use that a lot for um, something quick that I just want done and I don't wanna put as much time and effort into building the cards uh, for my own prototypes, even just black and white ones. Sometimes I'll do that if I have a lot of cards um, to get a really good quality uh, a qual good quality card that will work and that pound of paper really um, is more flexible now different countries will have different types of materials so finding and trying what works for you that's definitely part of the process of this hobby <laughs> um, but um, for me I you know I've shared some methods and videos on doing other types of um, cards with uh, which involves spraying with an acrylic sealer that helps the cards um, be a little more slick to be able to slide and move them. I um, use one that I don't know in, if it's only available here or not, but I use Mod Podge Matte Clear Acrylic Sealer. <laughs> and um, it's you know usually uh, for the regular size can, $6 at Walmart or whatnot. Um, it's a little more expensive sometimes online or whatnot because of shipping and things. but. I use that. Um, I you know make sure you're outside and or if I'm in the garage, I've got the door open to allow. You don't want to be breathing that in, but spraying the cards. And I have videos that show this technique. And then um, I like to put a core in my cards where. So I use a, a layout that's called the uh, four card uh, gutter fold method. This is where four fronts and four backs are on the same page. So they're they're on the page lands. Uh, landscape instead of portrait and there's a line between them and the backs are upside down so then you fold the paper in half so that the backs line up with the fronts and this is one of the best ways easiest ways to get a really good clean lineup of fronts and backs of cards because they're perfectly aligned on the on the dot when you get them all lined up in the document then when you print them even if it doesn't print perfect on the page when you fold along that line the backs do line up perfectly with the fronts um, and then uh, spray gluing that. Um, some people have used glue stick, but I used a spray glue. Def that has to be done outside as well. 
And then I like to do a core. Some people use a cardstock. Um, the method that I came up with is using half a sheet of laminate, like from laminating cards. I rip that in half. I put a sheet in the middle. It's I glue the spray glue the page, put the sheet in the middle, fold that over, and that's half the page. Then I do another half on the other side, and this is kind of confusing uh, audio, but there's a video that I show that explains that. Anyways, it's this method, and then cutting out cards, and this is a way to have a card that then. I run those through a laminator and you have to be careful and think, but I have, you know, instructions on that, but that kind of card, feels more like a regular playing card. Uh, some piece, some other people, I've had quite a few people try this method. Some really like it, others don't, and that's okay. There's lots of methods out there, but this is a really high end method. So for starting out, laminating cards is the easiest method uh, for cards that are good for sliding around, shuffling and things. So there's definitely high-end, low-end things, and it's good to, you know, if you're wanting to get more into it, trying different stuff and not being afraid to try different techniques and tools and and whatnot. <laughs> A little long-winded there. <laughs> no, it's good. It's just really good technical <laughs> advice. And, and like I said, there are some videos, and I'll have links to uh, to some of these videos that, that, you know, you share those with me, and I'll share those out with whoever uh, wants to check out in more detail and actually get a visual of what we're talking about. And now another thing I was sitting here thinking about, and this is a uh, little Martin Gonzalez uh, kind of <laughs> in my brain is the corner cutter. Cause a lot of times you're going to have oh, square yes. edges. And so give me your best practice as far as, <laughs> you know, rounding these corners and making them look more professional. Oh yes. The corner cutter is one of my favorite tools for sure. So there's a couple of different tools out there, but the main one um, that is recommended in the print play community uh, I actually first found it um, when I was, before even getting into print and play, was with scrapbooking and stuff and wanting to cut corners, crop corners on um, photographs and other things. And so I had searched and searched trying to find a really good quality one and eventually found this one that is, um, I'm going to... There's a couple, so there's two, there's a new one that came out. So I got to get, get get the right name here. It's the Sunstar Kadomaru Pro. And it's uh, only, well, in the U.S. it's usually somewhere between $12 and $15. And there's a newer version that came out that's the Neo. It's the same name, Sunstar Kadomaru Pro Neo. And that one is a newer model. Um, some people say it doesn't cut laminated cards as well. I haven't had too much of an issue at all with that. Um, I find it's easier to punch than the older one, but either way, those are both great tools. There are other corner croppers out there and they get the job done. If you have trouble with it, then think about upgrading for pretty inexpensive. You can get a good corner cropper and there, a lot of people bought them worldwide. They're not just in the U S and um, they actually usually are shipped, I think from Japan, if I remember right on that. And they're a fantastic tool, but there's also um, one for thicker materials that I use. It's the Cropodile Corner Rounder, and it has its settings for are a little wider, bigger, so they're not as nice for cards. But they, it cuts through thicker materials, so I use it for like boards or player mats, and that's worked really well. Uh, and also like maybe tiles or tokens that I want to round the corners. It really makes a print and play product finished when you cut those corners off especially on laminated cards because laminated cards have a sharp corner and 
they don't feel good when they poke into you. So being able to crop those works really well. Oh, and another thing I forgot is a simple, easy way for making cards and trying stuff out is to buy card sleeves. That's really common. You can buy card sleeves with or without a back on it. And just being able to put paper cards in there, you can, some people stick uh, other playing cards or old Magic the Gathering cards in between or whatnot. And there's other techniques out there, but that's an easy way too, is just using card sleeves. Yeah, definitely. And that's honestly my, my way of doing things, especially for <laughs> prototypes. And what I found is that you can go to the Dollar Tree and you can buy decks of cards for a dollar. You get yeah. the 56 card, you know, with the Joker and all that and for a buck. And so I'll go in there and buy like 10, <laughs> 10 decks of cards that I'll just use for a very, very long time and use that as the backing or as the core and, and just put things inside sleeves. And so, yeah, like yeah. you said earlier, you know, you can go as simple or as advanced as you want with all of this. But the main thing is finding something that works for you, finding tools and, and software and different things that you can actually use and, and turn into something versus just being overwhelmed or, or, or just not understanding. Like a lot of times we, you know, we'll get into a hobby and we'll go buy all the stuff, even the stuff we don't understand or don't have an idea of how to use. And we'll spend a lot of money on things and, and not even use it. And so I think starting small, starting simple, starting with scissors and kind of working your way up to the Cadillac uh, Kodamaru cutter, <laughs> right. uh, you know, is, is a good way way to do it. Yeah. Well, Rachel, this has been excellent. Do you have any closing thoughts as far as like, what would you tell people, you know, wanting to get into this side of the hobby, this side of game design, as far as print and play, give me your closing thoughts. It's a fantastic hobby. It, you can do as little or as much as you want with cost of supplies and tools and techniques, and you can definitely get really into it. Um, it's a fun hobby for both crafting and being able to play games and trying out new games and, and also like sharing feedback. Uh, some people really get into that. I've done that a lot with the contest, just really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. I say, if you're interested, try it out and see where it leads you. A lot, a lot of people start making a print and play and they're like, oh, this is so addictive. I keep making games and, and it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of fantastic communities that are friendly. Uh, really definitely a fun hobby to get into, get into. If you love games and you want to try some crafting of games, this is the one to get into. The other thing is, is um, I do enjoy putting together the files for games and I have done them for some others and I'm, you know, uh, available for hire if people are interested in that or, you know, sometimes I do trades or whatnot and help out with people uh, with their games and stuff because some people don't want to do the work. They just want to hire for it. But there's a lot of people out there that will help you, help you put the files together in the communities, reach out, uh, you know, or if if you want input on your files, you're like, hey, how does this look? Is it correct? Sharing that with community, people will let you know what if there's any issues or whatnot. Absolutely. And you're actually a person I have sent people to in the past that have reached out to me and said, hey, and I'm trying to find someone who can help me put together some prototypes or put together some really nice PNP files or PNP actual you know copies of a game. And I sent them to you because you do some excellent, excellent work. So yeah, I, I highly you, recommend Gabe. you for this, this purpose. And then also you've got Harsh Shadows that just came out. Where can people find that? Oh, well, Harsh Shadows was produced by Wonderspell, and they do have a little website that you can order it if you want the physical copy. If you want the print and play files, there's a free black and white version on pnparcade.com. There's a lot of game files on there. That's a good point. Where are you going to find the files for games? PNP Arcade has free ones and ones that cost money. There's other resources. Reach out in the community. We'll share with you. Um, but the color files are also there available for $4, uh, really inexpensive to download the full color version. And I put the files together in three different formats. So you can try uh, what format 
works for you, the layout of the cards and whatnot. Um, yeah, so there's uh, lot of options. <laughs> awesome. Well, Rachel, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with more PNP projects. I'm sure you've got a million in the works and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?